Introducing Royal Caribbean's newest ship, Icon of the Seas, the ultimate family vacation. The ultimate six slides, eight neighborhoods, zero compromise vacation. The ultimate never done that, can't wait to do it vacation. The ultimate chillin' by a different pool every day of the week vacation. This is the Icon of Vacations. Icon of the Seas, arriving in 2024. Book today. Come seek the Royal Caribbean. Ships Registry, Bahamas. It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. This episode is brought to you by Pepsi Wild Cherry. Pepsi Wild Cherry is bursting with delicious cherry flavor and a sweet, crisp taste that gives you more to go wild for. Getting wild may look different these days, but whether it's opting for a solo Friday binge watch or a big night out, Everyone can indulge in their wild side with Pepsi Wild Cherry, also available in Zero Sugar. So grab a Pepsi Wild Cherry and get wild. Here in the Northern Rockies, dark winter months are outlasted in basements, dens, and nooks, where kindred souls gather together to share intel, swap fly patterns, and relive the memories from seasons past. This gathering spot known locally as the February Room is the inspiration for this podcast. No matter the season, the door is always open to those with a fly fishing story to tell. Brought to you by CD Fishing USA, the North American distributor for composite development fly rods and accessories. 40 years of Kiwi ingenuity and graphite technology now available at cd-fishing.us or your local CD USA dealer. Follow us on Instagram, YouTube, and Facebook. And remember to go fishing. Here's your host, the Carnops, and this is the February Room. It seems everybody is talking about those uh, damn dams these days, uh, but hydropower remains arguably the best form of renewable energy that we have. Uh, there's pros and cons to all form of energy generation, of course, but uh, one of hydro's biggest downsides is the obstruction of fish passage. Whether it's steelhead or uh, a lamprey or, or some other species indigenous uh, to a particular watershed. There have been many efforts to transport fish around hydroelectric dams, including uh, fish ladders and uh, physically moving them via barges or even trucks. But uh, there's certainly been plenty of room for improvement in the world of fish passage. My guest today is CEO of a company that is committed to improving fish passage, and I can't wait to hear what he has to say. Vince Bryan, welcome to the show. Thanks very much. Well, we have a lot of important topics to cover today, uh, but in the spirit of the theme of our show, uh, do you have a personal fishing story you can share with us? Uh, sh- sure. I, you know, I grew up in uh, the Seattle area up in Edmonds, Washington, and uh, I had a very good friend who's actually on our board of directors as well, who was also um, an avid uh, fisherman. And we, we would go down uh, to the Edmonds uh, Marina every chance we got. And uh, we had a, a 19 foot bay liner with a, a terrible engine on it uh, at, the, <laughs> at, at the time. 
so we spent uh, half of our time uh, trying to go fishing um, fix by fixing the engine. But uh, on those days that we got out there, um, it was always it was always special, and we were always trying to find a way after school to get out there and so forth to go to go salmon fishing, principally um, around Possession Bar, uh, which was I don't know about a five mile run or so from the Edmonds Marina. Uh, we got to be pretty good at fishing that area and so forth when we got out there. But uh, that engine was always a, a concern. And uh, on this particular day, we it was a gorgeous day. I don't know, it was 75, 80 degrees out. I think it was midsummer sometime and uh, the engine started and we got out there and, and uh, uh, we were we were fishing. And I, I think we were probably 15, 16 years old or so. At, uh, I don't know, we were in a conversation about what our future careers might be like. And uh, uh, at that time, uh, uh, Mark, his father, was uh, uh, in the Coast Guard, was his was his job. There was this big Navy ship that was uh, a cruiser that was uh, about three miles off, closer to point, no point, um, but coming from the south, heading north, and just flying. We could see this this uh, ship really moving across and we were just kind of watching and talking about it, talking about the Navy and that kind of stuff, having uh, a, a good time as we're, as we're watching our lines uh, when uh, we were distracted by the fact that we had a fish on. So we turned our attention to the fish and we we're uh, taking in the line and so forth. And we, it, was a, it was a relatively small coho, I think, that we had to let go. It was under 20 inches or so. Um, and, uh, and so there was nothing too eventful about that, except that we turned around at that point and looked at what was coming at us. Um, and that destroyer that was a cruiser that was heading out, uh, at a very fast speed had left a wake that was, uh, coming across Puget Sound. It was breaking across Puget Sound. And when we looked up, it was a wall of water coming at us and, and uh, 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 we we barely had time to turn around and and look and uh, I grabbed the wheel. We still had one line in the water, and uh, it was basically what do we do? Because you could see that it was straight up um, the, the wall of water and it was just crashing down, coming across the and uh, th there didn't appear to be and we weren't going to turn around and outrun this thing. <laughs> and uh, uh, so we just decided well we have to try to hit it in a way that we're going to go through and over it. Um, and, uh, but that was all happened. I mean, this is all happening in a, in three or four seconds. And, uh, so we turn it, we get it, the boat turned into the wave, uh, almost straight into it, uh, just off a little bit. And the boat goes up and it goes straight up into the air. And both of us grab onto, I'm holding a steering wheel. He grabs onto <laughs> the, uh, and, uh, we just teetered at the top of the wave for just a second. And I thought for sure we were going right over. And uh, instead we crashed down on the other side and the whole boat just, I mean, just, it was just a smash uh, of the water as it came back down and a shuttering of the boat. And that was it. Uh, we, saw, <laughs> Whoa, <laughs> we, so. we survived, but uh, it, it was, <laughs> it was to me uh, really just uh, a, a reminder of how, uh, uh, quickly things can change on the water and how uh, how a, a beautiful day <laughs> of fishing uh, can uh, uh, turn into a whole different kind of an excitement. So so the boat essentially like levitated for a moment uh, once it hit the, the lip of the wave and yeah it, 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 it yeah we were really up 
totally vertical. Um, and I think uh, the movement of the wave under the boat, uh, when it hit the back part of the boat, I think it just it just caused it to tip forward again. Um, and so we then fell over the top of the wave, but it, it really felt <laughs> like we were going over. I've never experienced anything quite like it. Um, uh, as, as the boat, I mean, it was straight up in the air and, uh, and we weren't going fast. I mean, it was, we, we were probably going three or four miles an hour, but, uh, that wave was going probably 30, I think, miles an hour. Wow, you guys are so lucky that boat didn't tip over capsize. Uh, that, yeah, that could have been that could have been it. Yep, that's true. <laughs> that's a, um, yeah, and as, as we were out there, I think uh, on a weekday after school, there weren't a whole lot of boats around. So uh, anyway, it, it was, a, I will remember it for the rest of my life because uh, I've never seen a wave since then and I, uh, anything like it, but uh, it was, uh, one of those moments, you know, where you just, uh, you, you don't, you'll, you know, you're never going to forget that. <laughs> yeah, for sure. I, uh, I have my own destroyer story. Um, we were in Mexico years ago and we were filming a, uh, a fly fishing television show in Baja. And we were at this kind of remote spot that we had, you know, boated out to with our guide. And, you know, we had a camera crew and, you know, a, a two or three camera guys and, and uh, like three or four fishermen. So there was seven or eight of us or something. And uh, we'd wrapped up for the day and we were heading back along the coastline. And, you know, this destroyer rolls up kind of alongside us and it's just kind of paralleling us. And we're like, what in the heck is this all about? And, you know, pretty soon the boat stops and, and I've got binoculars and I can see they're watching us. And, and um, pretty soon out, out comes a Zodiac and and here comes, you know, a, a, a bunch of military guys in the Zodiac shooting over to us. And the guide that we're with is either asleep or feigning sleep. And uh, we get boarded by this, you know, the Mexican Navy on, on our little boat. And uh, they're rifling through our stuff and asking questions and, you know, none of us speak very good Spanish. And then, you know, finally the guy decides, okay, I better handle this. So, so he, he talks with them and, and, uh, and appeases them and, and they go about their way. And, um, it was, it was, it was frightening, but it turns out that I guess where we were fishing was like a, you know, a zone for drug traffickers. So they were, they were patrolling for drug traffickers and, you know, saw this boat full of like six gringos and, <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, I'll, I'll never forget it. That's the, the only time I've been close to a destroyer on the water, but, uh, wow. Yeah. You were lucky you got away with that one. Yeah, for sure. Well, cool. Uh, events. Um, so you're, you live in Seattle, correct? Correct. Yes. And did you grow up in the Pacific Northwest? Yeah, I was born in Chicago, but I think uh, when I was in kindergarten or so, uh, my, my dad, who was in the Navy, um, uh, he was training to be a, f a physician, and uh, we moved to Bremerton, Washington. But I primarily grew up in Edmonds, Washington. Okay, and um, was, was fishing something that, uh, that you did as a kid? Yeah, all the time. And that's, that's that story. Uh, when, when we moved to Edmonds, well, even before Edmonds, we lived in uh, 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 Paulsbo, uh, and as, you know, as as a real young kid, we had a creek run in the backyard, and I, I would just tie a line around a string, a string around a, a stick, uh, <laughs> and uh, go trout fishing in the in the stream in the, our backyard, basically. But uh, that that 
that's how I got started, I would say. And, um, uh, and then we just continued, uh, when we moved to Edmonds, we, uh, uh, would, uh, get out on the boat whenever we could. And, and it was usually salmon fishing that we were, that we were doing. And, and as I got older, you know, the, you expanded the areas when you could start to drive and so forth as to where you actually went. But, uh, it, it, to me, it, uh, salmon, uh, and I, I don't know what it is about that fish. Um, uh, you can, you, I guess it's because, um, of, of their whole journey and so forth, but it's also because of how many times you can go out and not be successful, um, that it's so special <laughs> when, you, right. when you do hit the fish. Right. Yeah. It's there. You never, you never really know uh, all there is to know about, about salmon and steelhead. That's for sure. They, they keep you on your toes. That's right. So your company, um, whoosh innovations, your, uh, your slogan on your website says, uh, quote, we are disrupting the world of fish passage with solutions that enable selective fish passage, restore natural habitat, and limit CO2, uh, unquote. So there's a lot to unpack there. Can you break that statement down for us? Sure. Um, well, when we talk about selective fish passage, uh, what we're talking about there really is um, uh, smart systems that on um, uh, where there are barriers where we're not letting the invasive fish through. So uh, a big part of the habitat problem as we see it is, um, is not that there isn't enough habitat, but the habitat has been invaded by species that shouldn't be there, which are often problematic for the uh, juvenile uh, uh, species such as, you know, smolt and fry and so forth as they're heading back out to sea. So um, selective fish passage is really uh, allowing the fisheries managers to say, hey, these fish should be up, these shouldn't be in the river, or if it's a hatchery fish, maybe we don't want them uh, breeding uh, with the wild fish. Uh, so uh, there's an opportunity to divert in our system uh, a fish that should not be passing a dam at those, at those pinch points, if you will, and to uh, help maintain more of the natural, uh, I guess, biodiversity in the rivers rather than ones that have been altered by time and oftentimes man who's, you know, planted planted fish in reservoirs and so forth that shouldn't be there. Right. The, the bucket biologists. Yes. <laughs> so um, it's an opportunity to clean up the water. So that's what we mean by selective fish passages, the ability to sort um, in real time. Um, and not do that by hand, but the computer actually does it. Um, so uh, a fish ladder uh, will pass any fish that is capable of, of climbing it. And, that, and so um, if you look on the Columbia River, for example, uh, the biomass that's entering the Columbia River every year from the sea, as in terms of numbers of fish, has not actually changed much. Um, but uh, over the last uh, 20 years and so forth, you can see there's a, almost a direct correlation of the, of the number of shad entering the river and a decrease in the number of salmon entering the river. Gotcha. So the important, the important word there is biomass because, you know, um, from what we understand, right, these are the lowest salmon and steelhead counts that we've seen since 1938. But, but you're but you're talking about biomass. You're talking about all the fish coming up. 
all the fish. So, so exactly. So what's happening, they're out competing, if you will, the salmon for a variety of reasons in the, including, uh, I think the, you know, the, the temperature of the water is one big obstacle for the fish, but the ladders, um, uh, you know, obviously helped, uh, keep the fish alive and didn't, so that they didn't go extinct everywhere, um, over the years, but they're, I think uh, a re-examination is really what we have done at uh, looking at these and said, you know, there's a problem here. We can't be saying that we're at 98% passage at each of the dams and um, in a ladder and then have no expl good explanation, I guess I should say, for why so few are actually uh, reaching the spawning grounds. So uh, if you look at the numbers that reach the mouth of the rivers, um, you, you have enough fish uh, to grow the, the runs, uh, which needs to be about 2% or more of total returns from those that went out to sea. Um, but by the time they get to the spawning grounds, we're, those numbers are well under that, um, oftentimes a half percent or less. So to us, uh, it really meant that uh, we have to do a better job of getting the fish that make it to the first dam all the way to their spawning grounds. And, um, and then once there, it's, it's making sure that, uh, we always talk about habitat improvements and so forth, uh, which, is, which is great. But part of that is what's in those waters. Um, what, are the, what are the fish that should be there? <laughs> what are the fish that shouldn't be there? Um, and, uh, and getting that uh, back to a more natural state rather than this uh, altered one that we've created. So there's been there's been no bouncer at the door. They didn't, we've been letting all the riffraff in. We 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 have, or we've been putting it in. Yes, sneaking them in the back door, whatever however you want to put it. We yeah, we've been doing that, and and it's a it's it's interesting because the uh, structure politically, uh, for, I guess from an agency perspective, you know, you've got NOAA nymphs responsible for the Andronomus species like salmon and steelhead that are coming in from the sea. And then you have the state agencies responsible for those fish that are resident in the in the rivers and so forth. And those, uh, while oftentimes they coordinate, uh, that doesn't mean the priorities are the same. So if a state can make money off of uh, selling licenses for smallmouth bass in a reservoir that shouldn't have any smallmouth bass at all, um, then there's a there's a natural conflict there. Um, you know, right. Why should, uh, so maybe the state shouldn't have any uh, license required to take out the smallmouth bass in, the, in those rivers when those are in fact invasive to the, that location, as an example. Um, uh, so, uh, you know, the pike minnow, there's been these programs for years about taking out the pike minnow for salmon and steelheads smoke because they're so, uh, but, but it, and, and a lot of people will make a lot of money on fishing for those uh, to reduce their numbers. But it's 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 managing. It's they're trying to manage the numbers, not um, not return them to the, the natural state. I guess um, so. It's a different approach uh, that we're taking, and really saying, hey, it can be passive here. You can just have this operating all the time, and um, for species like the American shad that are coming up the Columbia, the issue isn't that they're eating the juveniles and so forth. It's it's uh, the salmon don't like being in the ladders at the same time as the shad so then they huh. will they will delay it it also makes it very difficult to get accurate counts because sometimes the shad are so thick that you can't actually see what what's coming in uh, from 
the sea with the salmon. So our, our system, because it's running 24 hours a day and we're looking at every, literally every fish that comes through, uh, we can start to see trends uh, and so forth that you can't otherwise uh, see. And uh, a good example of that is we had a system down on in Bonneville AFS facility put it in 2019. And uh, if you recall this, the, you know, the sea lions have been an issue there below Bonneville Dam. And historically, the counts have been on the sea lions um, looking from people observing from the shore of, of fish being eaten as they toss them up in the air and so forth. Um, but what we were able to see in the, in the first months that we put the system in uh, was that uh, about 14% of the Chinook in the month of May at the time that we were doing that um, were, had a major injury, a uh, pinniped injury on them. They had made it past and got up the ladder, but the pinniped, while they were not successful in actually eating them, had uh, caused an injury which was probably going to cause that fish not to make it to the, uh, to the spawning grounds. Right, and and by pinniped you mean you mean seals, sea lions. They're all in the pinniped family. Correct. Yeah, yeah. So and and there at Bonneville, it's primarily sea lions. But uh, you can see these big uh, uh, scrapes from either their claws or their or their uh, teeth uh, on the fish itself. And you know, if you wanted to, um, uh, with our system, you could divert those also and say, okay, we're going to take those. We're going to treat that fish. Uh, hold it uh, for a period of time until it had a chance to recover before letting it uh, get infected. Uh, so there, there are things that can be done when you know more and you're doing, have the ability to do real-time sorting. So um, the other aspect of that statement that you brought up that's from our website on the CO2 um, is, is really um, a different way of thinking about hydropower. Um, if you look at the dams in the United States, there's eight, about 85,000. Some, some people say there's 90,000, but let's just say 85,000 dams in the United States. Only 2,500 of those dams are hydropower. And so uh, that begs the question, well, what about all those other dams? Um, the ones you hear about in the news all the time are, are the hydropower dams. It always gives me pause because... Um, that those are the ones we most often hear about because those are uh, typically the ones that have, you know, there's, there's money being generated off of those. And so it's, it's easy to go after those, but the other uh, 83,000 dams in the country um, are, are there for irrigation water or they're there for uh, flood control and that kind of thing. And I actually think there's a real opportunity to, to put in small hydropower on s some of those dams um, and that will allow enough uh, dollars to be generated off of there that it can actually be put toward fish passage. Because under the federal law, if you're put in hydropower, you have to address um, fish passage during the licensing process. Where, as if if it's a if it's just a reservoir or flood control, you don't. And so, unless a state law requires it, but a lot of these dams have been grandfathered in. So the way that I think the fastest way to help fish get to these these areas where they currently have no access is is we can put in our system certainly, but uh, uh, where is the money going to come from? Because that's often the issue uh, for these non-power dams. Uh, that 
there may be an opportunity to put in small hydro uh, at these and and pay for it that way. So I think I think we've got to rethink how we've been how we've been approaching this uh, problem, and then conservation groups do as well. That uh, uh, we need the clean energy, as you said. That wind and solar cannot get us there alone, um, and uh, hydropower in uh, I think it is 50 countries. For, excuse me, 40 countries of the world get more than 50% of their power from from hydropower. So it's not something that's going to go away. And if we're going to go to a clean energy grid to stop the acidification in the oceans and so forth uh, that are also impacting the fish and, and climate change, which is impacting the fish, we we ought to, we, we can't really uh, take down uh, all the dams uh, in this given flood flooding and so forth so uh and even if we did it was going to take uh if we took down a, i always say this if we took down a dam a day in this country it would take 234 years <laughs> yeah there you go uh, so so the fish don't have that much time that's what it comes right to. right and now a brief message from our sponsors high performance graphite shouldn't break the bank check out the tamer brand of fly rods for composite developments available in five six and eight weight an unbelievable value at 199 dollars tamer four-piece fly rods deliver smooth cast and precise presentation our tamer kits include a fly lab pulse reel and weight forward fly line a river ready kit for under 300 bucks go to cd-fishing.us or visit a cd dealer in idaho montana or wyoming and remember to go fishing and so can you explain um, how your system works? How does the whoosh innovation system work? Because it's pretty cool from what I understand. I don't, I haven't seen it, but just what I've read, it, it looks, looks yeah. pretty innovative. Well, well, it is. So we've, we really, um, we, we started with the blank slate and said, uh, what are the problems um, that the fish are facing? Um, uh one of the problems in heading upstream is is delays that occur at the fish ladder. Uh, part of the reason that they delay at the fish ladder is because you are, are, are often pulling the surface water, which is warmer water that's coming down the ladder compared to the cooler, relatively cooler water that the fish is in where the water has come through the dam from lower depths. So we're asking the fish to go up a warm ladder, which to them is a, not a good idea generally. Right. Especially when the temp, so we said, well, we've, we've got to be able to address that. Um, another problem that we said, saw was that uh, the amount of energy um, that is being expended by the fish as they're going upstream is, it's a, not a natural, through a ladder, is not a natural expenditure of energy. They're having to use burst swimming uh, con continuously in the ladder, um, which, which is depleting their energy reserves and, um, and increasing their stress level, especially if they're in, in the uh, warmer water. So, so uh, how can we uh, improve the travel time through to get past the dam as well as use less of their energy so they have more energy actually reach their spawning ground. So that was another problem we were trying to solve. Um, and then the last thing um, was how do we create a system that can be flexible given that climate change is changing uh, the, 
the water levels, fr frankly, um, uh, they're becoming quite variable both in the tail race below the dam and above the dam. And that, that's making, um, if you have a fixed structure for fish passage, it will only work within the range that it was designed for. And meaning some of the time it's not working um, as, as designed. Uh, and so the fish then have trouble or, or it becomes impossible for them to pass through there. So what, having identified that and others, um, but those are three big ones, we took an approach of saying, well, it's very difficult to get uh, water to go up hill. It's difficult to get a fish to go up. Um, uh, but from a physics standpoint, if we remove the water and transport the fish in air, in misted air, so they can continue to breathe and exchange oxygen, but um, we, we removed the weight of the water if you were to pump, try to pump something up over a high dam. Uh, after about 30 feet, you, 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 you have to really have a pressurized system that uh, can also be damaging to the fish. But if we just move the fish um, and some mist in the tube, then we've eliminated that problem. So uh, that's what we did. We, we, we developed a, a, what's effectively a pneumatic system where the fish is moving through the air in a soft, flexible tube um, that we can hang uh, from uh, any infrastructure along the side of a dam or along the side of a cliff uh, to get the fish up and over the dam. And we can transport those fish at about 25 feet per second. So in a very short period of time, um, usually um, 30 seconds or less, the fish is, uh, from the time that they've entered the system, is up over the dam and on their way again. As compared to in a, in a fish ladder, it might be a couple hours or it may be a week before they make it through the ladder as oftentimes there's fallback and other things that happen in the ladder. Here, once they've committed to going, they're, they're immediately delivered uh, up above the dam. And what our studies have shown is that they then uh, continue right on. There's no resting required um, or recovery required. Uh, there's no injury that's happening in the ladders from them falling back and so forth uh, or smashing themselves against the concrete. They're just, they're on their way. Um, so uh, by adding that scanning system on the front, uh, on the front end of it, of that system, uh, the fish swim in. So the, the, the process from the fish's perspective, they swim in, they swim over a false weir, which is like the, Think of it as a first step of a fish ladder. They swim over that. But on the other side, instead of there being a pool of water, um, we have a, we, we dewater. And at that instant, we're taking images from multiple angles of that fish. Um, and in the next fraction of a second, we are able to sort that fish into the appropriate tube, depending upon what the, the fisheries managers want to achieve at, at that location. And sorry, uh, is, is this what you refer to as the fish L recognition system? Yeah, yeah. Okay. We, and, and you said fish L, and and we we thought we were being clever by by you know it's instead of facial recognition, facial recognition. Facial. Oh, fish that makes sense. No, that's on me. Official <laughs> <laughs> no, no, recognition system. Okay, cool. Yeah, so yeah. so we have a uh, we have a pneumatic tube with a mist in it that uh, that gives the fish enough oxygen. And we have a system that's going to recognize which patrons can come to the party and which can't. 
That's exactly right. And we, we know a lot about that fish as it's going through this size and it's um, uh, so forth. So ultimately, as, as more of these get deployed, you would know exactly um, what fish are in what sections of the river, uh, for example. And I think from a fishing perspective, uh, you, can, you would be able to then uh, very clearly, um, there would be much less guessing about numbers of fish uh, in, uh, that have reached any, any particular section of, a, of the river. And uh, you'll know uh, at that point how to manage that, that river from a fish, fishing and fishing license perspective so that uh, it's sustainable. So um, how, what, what sort of distance can you transport a fish with this system? You mentioned 25 feet per second. So, you know, yeah. can, you, can, you, can you move them up 200 feet? Oh yeah, we, that, that would be a short system. So the longest uh, one that we've done so far is 1,700 feet. Holy cow. Wow, okay. Yeah, and uh, there's really no uh, height limit for us. So we typically would have it on about a 40 degree angle and so forth, which means that uh, 1,100 foot system would go over a 700 foot dam. So you can move them up over Bonneville in the Dalles and... D yeah, Dvorak. Uh, yeah, yeah. So, which is uh, oh, yeah. Tall. That's um, right. That's so, a big one. Yeah, yeah. So we've got uh, a lot of this stuff going on. If you you know, there's you could talk about the Snake River dams, but also the the treaty for the use of the waters of the Columbia River is expiring in 2024, and um, you know one of the issues there is is actually getting the fish back up uh, up to Canada over Chief Joseph Dam and Grand Coulee Dam, and so we we did oh, a interesting. We did a pilot project at Chief Joseph Dam, uh, Department of Fish and Wildlife, and uh, the Colville Tribe in 2018 to prove that it was possible. And uh, so we we think uh, making the fish, giving them access to uh, areas that they haven't had access to in a long time, is really a, a key to the recovery. But they've got to be they've got to be there in good enough shape that they they can do their thing. And uh, uh, the great thing about fish, and this is, you know, maybe God's gift to man, was really that uh, they put so many, God put so many eggs in those fish that um, the, the opportunity, f there really is an opportunity for recovery. And uh, if, if those fish are successfully spawning, um, you know, the numbers can, can grow quickly again. Right, and the Elwha River in Washington is a perfect example of that. Right here, here you have a system that was that was dammed, and uh, the steelhead were cut off. Correct, and so you had two populations above and below the dam. Above the dam were, and correct me if I'm wrong. This is my understanding of this. Um, the the population above the dam had become, you know, essentially resident rainbows, steelhead and rainbows being genetically identical. When they removed those dams, what, 10 years ago, in a pretty short span of time, those rainbows were able to become steelhead again, right? Yeah, I, that, that did happen. Um, and uh, I, I do have a story about the Elwha that's, that not many people have heard because it's always held out as the best example of when you take down a dam. I, and it made total sense to take down uh, the two dams there uh, because you had a national forest behind it, um, the Olympic National Forest. And so those waters were uh, had not been 
polluted or and the, the sediment held behind those dams was really was clean it was not toxic from from agricultural pesticides and that fertilizers and all that kind of thing but i i will tell you after those dams came down we did get a call um from washington state department of fish and wildlife and i was surprised we got a call and um they i, I said well what's the problem they said well you got to come out and see um, we're, we're having to trap the fish. And this is when we were reading in the papers in the very first year or two that fish were returning already. And I was like, how is that possible that they can be returning already? Right. Too good to be true. It, it, it didn't make any sense, but that's what, every, you know, that's what kept getting reported. But when we got called out uh, there and, and looked uh, at what was happening, there was so much sediment. There were fish returning. There, there were fish returning. Those fish, though, were hatchery fish from the hatchery that was below the Elwha Dam. And they couldn't get to the hatchery. They couldn't get to the hatchery because so much sediment was coming down that every time it rained, the river moved about a thousand feet into a new channel, some direction. And it was, it was, uh, and it was leaving three to four feet of deposit of sediment in the ground. And so when they were, they were spawning in the river, the, uh, the sediment was covering up the reds and they were concerned that they were going to be wiping out all the fish, including the hatchery fish. So they were trying to um, uh, recover the fish from the river. They were capturing them. And uh, then they were asking us, can we help move the fish from one side of the river uh, over to the other side of the river where there was a road and they get the fish into the hatchery truck and then they deliver them to the hatchery and so forth. So in those early years, um, many of the reports there were really what was happening was the hatchery fish were going right by the hatchery um, because they couldn't get to it. And they were, that's what was returning. Oh, gotcha. Not, not wild, not wild Elwha fish. Not wild Elwha fish. Yeah. So I, I, I think this is one of the things that, uh, uh, you know, our first, our first product uh, was called, we, the product we've been talking about is the Woosh Passage Portal, the Passage Portal, um, which is fully automated system. But the first one we built uh, was an, a manual system uh, that was really more for hatchery operations and biologists and so forth uh, in, in doing studies. And, and that's the one that uh, lots of people know the name of it it's called, because it was uh, the media called it the salmon cannon because it kind of looked like a right. cannon. Right, right. Um, yep. Um, but but that system um, it, it it was was a, a manual load. You physically handled the fish to put put the the fish. It was into like a, it. a single shot rifle, right? Like a like right. a musket. Yeah, good, good analogy. Yeah, uh, exactly. Um, which obviously wasn't going to be uh, good in a situation where you had thousands of fish returning, um, and that's why for us it was just a step in our development path. It still has useful life, but the word salmon cannon, um, we now try to use that on our blog page. We changed the spelling of cannon to C-A-N-O-N, uh, one N instead of two Ns, to represent um, the truth. Um, and I think too often in the attempts to make an argument in the fishery space, th people throw around uh, information which is uh, not true to the site. From our perspective, um, prior to what we're trying to do is let's talk 
the truth here. And like Elwa, hey, I think it's a tremendous success. I, I and it should have been done. And it, and and but but nobody should expect the time that they do it the next time that they're going to get results the next year of fish returning because that's actually not how it happened to really at the Elwa either. Right. Um, and right. Uh, and uh, and so let's set the expectations properly. Um, and not tell a narrative which is fabricated um, or just not based upon facts. So, you know, and that, that, that's why this, uh, this argument over the uh, Snake River dams is uh, such a tough one because there, there are truths and not truths in a lot of what people are saying. Um, and, uh, the, you know, there's no question that the fish numbers have gone down. So that, that we can all agree upon. Um, and uh, uh, the, the trend you know, continues to be down. So, but what, what is the problem? What's going on there? Why is it happening? Um, and um, is the answer that everybody's focused on, well, it's, well, it's downstream passage is the problem. And we, we agree downstream passage can be improved, but is, we don't agree that that's uh, the principal problem. And so I, I think that's, uh, that's where I think maybe stand alone here in many of these situations where we're we're coming in it, at it from a scientific standpoint. We've got a, our own our own biologists on board and so forth. At, with the understanding is that hey, I don't want any of the we we've got to prove everything. I don't care if there was a study done 20 years ago. The conditions are completely different now. So we need to know what the base case is right now to know what the right thing to do is today. And it's hard, hard. To, it's very hard to do studies um, with fish. Uh, they don't cooperate, and <laughs> they're hard to track. Yeah. And, uh, and, and, and I can tell you, they're camera shy, they're, especially they're, especially steelhead. <laughs> yes. Um, though, though I tell you, we've got some spectacular pictures that we uh, maybe we could share some with you of uh, them uh, steelhead going through the scanner. I'd love to see. We'd love to. We'd love to see those. Yeah, that'd be great. Yeah. Would your system, um, could this be employed, um, uh, and you may or may not know the answer to this, but uh, could could this be employed like at, uh, at Round Butte Dam? Um, I'm sure you're aware of the selected water withdrawal tower and uh, the uh, the issues on, on that river. Um, has that been a discussion at all on the shoots? Uh, it, it is possible on both um, on both sites. Uh, for, for the longest time, understand that um, we had to go through a number of studies. Um, you have to prove that the system is safe, timely, efficient, and effective under under a variety of water conditions um, and with all the potential species. And when you've got endangered or threatened species like you do in some of those rivers, there's heightened scrutiny because if you do something that's called a take, and that means even delaying the fish or... Uh, trapping the fish or uh, it doesn't necessarily mean injuring or killing the fish uh, that that the endangered species act that's actually a criminal uh, offense so uh, the the testing that's got to be done ahead of time was was long so a lot of the uh, during a lot of the time uh, that we were that these problems uh, were being discussed on at these, these two locations that you've mentioned here. Yeah, Round Butte and Pelton. We were not yet through that process. We we now feel like we are, um, although 
National Marine Fisheries Service and so forth makes their decisions, recommendations based upon, you know, each site. But yeah, the, the, the system, from our perspective, especially in the Northwest, um, the, the system is really, it was optimized for salmon first. Uh, we're doing things now on the East Coast. We just delivered a system this last weekend to uh, for shad, actually, where it's they're native uh, on the east coast, um, and then um, in the in the mid, middle part of the country uh, to help remove uh, the uh, the various carp species, the silver carp, the ones that you see jumping up out of the water and hitting people and so forth. Right, right. Um, so the system is incredibly flexible and can be deployed, um, you know, quickly. It doesn't. It, it usually uh, installation takes a week or two, uh, and the uh, you know we, we we need some time to build the equipment uh, a, a few months. But it's not years and years and years uh, for of planning and and so forth that has to be done because we're really not um, doing any civil infrastructure of significance. Um, uh, we we need a few places to attach it to hang the tube from and uh, off we go. Do you know, this is a little off subject, but I've always been curious about this. Why do they call it a pike minnow? I, I understand they had to change the name for for uh, for PC purposes, but do you have any idea why they call that fish a pike minnow? It has nothing to do with a northern pike. It does not have anything to do with northern pike. I, I, don't, I don't know, they're both, I, I, I actually don't know the answer to that. Um, <laughs> um, it's a terrible uh, name. Uh, <laughs> Every time we catch one and I have to explain it to somebody, they're like, oh, so it's a pike. It's just a, it's a pike. You know, it's a small pike. No. Yeah. <laughs> well, but yeah. why is it called a pike minnow? I don't know. I didn't, I didn't name it. But. Uh, yeah. I don't know. They're thin fish. <laughs> uh, the, I don't, it's a good question. I, uh, I'm not an expert. On, on <laughs> well, I, I didn't think you were. I, I'm trying to find an expert. So if you can find anybody, if you run into anyone who knows the answer to that question, please send them my way. Okay, <laughs> we'll, pro we'll probably have to get into the the family and species and genus and all that kind of thing that will probably answer the question. But uh. well, Vince, our our salmon and steelhead populations are dwindling, um, and you know I don't think a lot of people realize the the significance of these species uh, to the overall health of our ecosystems. Um, you know, these fish serve as the the vehicles that deliver nutrients from the ocean you know, to the mainland, to the interior um, that feed both flora and fauna. Um, and, you know, if they disappear, we may we may see the redwood forest disappear. Who knows? That may seem extreme, but but uh, there's definitely going to be some major detrimental impacts if we lose these fish. And um, your company um, seems to have developed a functionally significant system that could have a major impact on the future of these, uh, these all-important species. Um, how can folks learn more about whoosh innovations and um, is there an opportunity for them, for some, for some people to invest in this company or support this company? Yeah. Uh, well, thank you for asking that question. Um, we, uh, you know, whoosh innovations has been around for a while now. We've been, um, we, we, since 2008 is when the, the company was formed uh, under a different name. We were solving a problem in agriculture and really then turned to the, our focus of fish starting about 2013 and now that's all we do um we we decided this last year that um so many people are passionate about this that we wanted to open up the company for investment and um if you go to startengine.com slash whoosh you'll see us there we're doing a 
we are doing an investor raise there um, under the reg, what's called reg CF. Um, so you actually buy securities um, and own uh, shares in the company. And there's a minimum investment that's required. Um, I can't get into the specifics for, for legal reasons sure. here. But uh, if you go to that site or to our own site and, and just click the invest now button there, you, you're not actually investing when you hit the button, but it takes you to the site where you can uh, read all the financials and the legal and and so forth. But for us, it's, it's critical that we have, um, it, it really does help us when we're talking with the uh, the legislators and the politicians and so forth to say, we've got investors in your just jurisdiction. Um, they care about this. We want to see this happen. Uh, and uh, oftentimes, you know, we, ne we need the help of the politicians to help uh, initiate change in these uh, places where the fish are being blocked and so forth. So um, it, 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 is, it is one of the few uh, companies I think we're you know, our, our mission, we say, save the fish, feed the planet, which is getting to the point you were making, and then grow clean energy, which is, uh, by that, I really, we really mean um, all of the, the renewables. And I think that if you take um, what we have done um, and um, put it together into an investment uh, opportunity, it's one of those things that you, you can do today. Um, you know, what can you do about climate change and so forth? Uh, uh, and, and how can we help um, our planet. We are part of that answer, um, not the only answer, but we're part of that answer and it's something that you can take action with today. So uh, startengine.com slash whoosh, um, you can invest today and uh, we'd be happy to have folks and uh, um, we're, we're raising up to $5 million right now. Um, this uh, helps us um, because we, we do spend uh, an an inordinate amount of time, I think, doing non-install, um, <laughs> but spending time educating, uh, whether it's uh, local politicians or edu uh, biologists and so forth, um, as to uh, the benefits of doing this for the ecosystem and, and, and really getting them comfortable with what is a, a new technology for them, and not something that they've been doing for the last hundred years, which has proven to be not good enough. Right, right. Well, well, Vince, thank you so much for your time today. Uh, we really appreciate it. And, um, and um, keep up all the good and all important work that you're doing. Thanks so much for taking the time to, to listen. We appreciate your interests and look forward to uh, some great uh, fishing adventures on the show in the future. Go to thefebruaryroom.com where you can access a complete library of our podcast and read more about our guests their fishing stories, and favorite fly patterns. We're always looking for exceptional fly fishing yarns, and if you have one to spin, shoot us an email at info at thefebruaryroom.com. The February Room is always free, but if you feel like throwing a nickel in the pond, we appreciate any additional listener support. For companies and individuals interested in sponsorship opportunities, please contact us for our media kit. Thanks for stopping by the February Room. And we'll see you down here next week.